0: All right, Jason Thomas from uh, Colorado Public Radio here. I have Bob Mould on the line. Bob, how are you this morning?
1: Doing good, Jason. How are you?
0: Great, great. Um, I, I, You've lived in so many different places. I, It's tough to keep track. I mean, I, I heard it was Berlin recently. Where are you right now?
1: Uh, back in San Francisco. Uh, I went over to Berlin in 2016 and spent three and a half years living over there. Had a wonderful time. And uh, came back to the states at the end of last year to get ready for some touring and to prepare for the recording of what became Blue Hearts, the album. And uh, once we got the album finished, the beginning of March, it was uh, we were into coronavirus, and it was not 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 advisable to go back to Germany. You know, there was a lot of travel restrictions and quarantines and stuff like that. So unfortunately, I'm wrapped up my time in Berlin, but I'm happy to be back in San Francisco. So
0: Yeah, it's been quite smoky out there. My, my folks live out that way. I I know, and I'm just reading about it, and it, it really is, you know, fire season when I was a kid was, you know, it would be some fires here and there, but these last few years, it's been really really bad. I mean, I guess cer- certain days are better than others, but I, I remember seeing those picture, pictures on social media, people sharing at noon on a Tuesday afternoon, and it looks like it's nighttime.
1: Yeah, we've, We've been having we've had a very early fire season this year in northern california it's been it's been particularly bad, as everyone knows, and you know i'm not I don't really know what to attribute it to, other than it seems like the climate has changed. <laughs> I don't know you know, I, I I I think it's I think it's at the hands of humans and uh, but you know it's specifically it just feels like we we're losing a little bit of our marine layer you know in our fog and I think the coast is seems to be a little bit drier than normal these days I could be completely wrong but uh, but yeah it's it's a lot to contend with some days it's some days it's pretty much impossible to go out without getting a headache right away. And that's, of course, wearing a mask at all times. So, yeah. Um, but today I think it's going to be good. So when I wrap up my, my work day, maybe I get out and have a nice long walk in the city.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a gorgeous city when it's not, you know, being choked by smoke. Um, Indeed. The, uh, so the, the new record is, is out now. It's called Blue Hearts. The first song you shared, as far as I know, was American Crisis, which is very very up tempo, very loud, very punk and anyone that's seen your live shows, I mean they know you have no trouble at all dialing it up to that speed but to share a song like that as the first taste of a record right out of the gate. The thinking behind that. I know the song's pretty self-explanatory with the title but if someone's not familiar with American Crisis, can you talk about that song a little bit?
1: Yeah, so uh you know Blue Hearts the album came out a few weeks ago and early June was the first of three tracks that we let, that we released in advance of the album and the first track American Crisis is the oldest song on the album it's a track that I wrote in April of 2018 while I was living in Berlin and it did not take long to write those words i just they fell out onto the page i looked at them and said eh, these don't need any editing <laughs> Sure. <laughs> and it was at, it was it was originally slated to be on the Sunshine Rock album which was my my happy album, my upbeat album that came out in the spring of 2019. But it seemed a little heavy at the time, so I held on to the song, kept it in my back pocket and it ended up being one of the the central songs and central themes for what became Blue Hearts this year. Um as far as the decision to release it first, you know, that was that's pretty much the reason. It felt like that was the inspiration for a lot of the the, the topics that I that I sing about on the album. You know, and, and with this one it, you know, American Crisis to me is a song about looking back at the eighties, looking back at, you know, the first Reagan administration term and, you know, their you know them, them finding so much support from the evangelicals and you know reagan being a, a hollywood type you know sort of an entertainment personality president and uh you know specifically for me remembering as a as a young gay man being told that uh, you know being told by the moral majority that majority that uh, aids was uh, god's punishment to me for my lifestyle and waiting for five years for the government to say something about it, you know, and that was a lot to contend with. So, you know, I saw, I looked back on that and, you know, through the lens of today, you know, where we have a very similar situation where we've got a, you know, television personality president who finds a lot of his backing from, you know, the evangelicals, the old moral majority, they're, they're still there. They're still kicking and they're still, you know, trying to, trying to push my rights So. You know, down back into the ground. So, I felt like it was my my place to talk about that, to share that story with people. Yeah, I... the timing of re- the timing of releasing the track on June 3rd. I mean, that was something we had decided six weeks prior. That was, of course, before Breonna Taylor and before George Floyd. And when you know those, that was before the Bible Walk. You know, across the across Lafayette Park in D.C. when Trump you know, tear gassed people so that he could stand in front of a a church he's never been to with a Bible. Um, yeah, the timing was uncanny and weird and a little unsettling for me, but there you have it.
0: Yeah. No, I, I I remember the song. Yeah. You're talking about, yeah, right after, um, George Floyd and the protests and everything. Yeah. It just, it hit at the exact right time with that song title, the, the energy, the attitude. So yeah, I definitely wanted to ask you about that. Um, your bass player, Jason Nardusi, he he tweeted about the new record. He said, if people like Workbook and Black Sheets of Rain, that they'll probably like this record too. Do you see or hear similarities between the new record and those earlier ones that Jason talked about?
1: Um, well, I think Black Sheets of Rain being, you know, in 1990, it was, you know, I touched on topics, you know, about, you know, with climate change at the time and things like that. But I think the spirit of the record to me goes back even further. I think it goes, but I think it, again, when I took that look back towards the early 80s, you know, to, to, to look at who I was as a 22 year old, you know, gay kid, sort of confused about my sexual identity, you know, certain certainly understanding I was gay, but not having an affinity with the community and, and being in this band, Who's Could Do, it was, you know, I mean, it was just. <laughs> That that was my consideration when, when going into you know making this record you know and uh, it's funny because Jason and John and I always talked about making sort of a, a flat out punk record which I think parts of this record are I think there's other parts that are that are that are that are, that are melodic and and a little more measured and you know a little more personal but uh, yeah I think it's a little bit like Black Sheets I think some people have mentioned the the Sugar album Beaster that came out in 1993 that there's, you know, similarities there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an angry record at times. So I I can, I can see, I can see some of those comparisons being, you know, being, being valid, but, you know, again, it's, it's a record that, you know, first and foremost speaks to a lot of the problems that we as a country are facing right now.
0: Uh, You mentioned Jason and John and Jason Arduce and John Worcester, you're, Your bandmates, I guess you'd say. Um, Mm -hmm. I would imagine someone like yourself doesn't take that for granted. Having reliable folks like that, they've been with you for a long time. How long have they been with you exactly?
1: Well, Jason and I became friends in 1990 uh, in Chicago, and we've we've stayed in very close contact on a number of levels. You know, whether it was you know me helping Jason out with his. Projects in the '90s, like you know the Jason and Allison records or the Verbo album, you know things he was doing at the time. Um, I've been a fan of John's work in Superchunk and all the other projects he's worked on since the '90s. And when the opportunity, you know, arose for the three of us to work together at the end of the 2000s, and it was 2008, 2009 was the was the beginning of our working relationship as a band, it just made perfect sense. We, you know, we travel well together. We we all really love music and performing. I think we have a lot, we speak a common language when it comes to music. You know, I think our sensibilities line up real well. And, and, and you know, again, that idea of traveling well, you know, the, touring is, touring is typically what ends most bands. <laughs> Something sure. happens on the road or, you know, and we've been really lucky that you know we we get on great, and we're very respectful of, of each other's space when we're on the road, and yeah, I mean we're we're you know we're we're older than most bands, you know, and, and just in chronological age, and we've been doing this our whole lives, and we we take it very seriously and very respectful of the of the of the music and of the of the art form, and. You know, it's just, it's just stuff like that, you know, that that, that, that keeps it going and keeps it exciting. And, and, you know, we we get together to make records, we get together to tour. So we're not a day in, day out living in the band together 24-7 or in a group house living together 24-7. So we we have lives away from this and we really value the time that we have when we get together to make music.
0: Yeah, no, you can tell when you guys play live that you've been doing it for a while. You work well together. I, I worked in Chicago for 14 years. I got to know Jason a little bit, so I, I can vouch for him. I can give you another reference if you need one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, excellent, excellent. Yeah, he's a, he's a good he's a good follow on Twitter. He tweeted this a few days ago before the record came out. He said, uh, years ago, John Worcester and I formed a band with Bob Mould. We had a meeting after the first practice. John and I were so impressed with Bob's voice, songs, and guitar playing that we decided to call the band Bob Mould. So there you go. But, uh,
1: <laughs> Jason and John both on, on Twitter are pretty, are pretty, pretty great to read. So
0: Yeah, for sure. Split, split single band if you want to follow Jason. But um, he did mention uh, those records, those workbook and Black Sheets of Rain that I brought up. And I was listening to some of your older records last night. I, I did spend a little bit of time with Modulate. And as someone that likes both rock and electronic music, I, I can totally understand why someone would Play around with their sound like that. Um, going back to that one, the reception that record received. I, what was it like, and, and how do you feel about that record now?
1: I think P- Modulate was an album that came out in two thousand two. Uh, the album before that, The Last Dog and Pony Show, came out in nineteen ninety eight. I had been playing rock guitar and living in the van, living the rock life for twenty years. And again, as a as a gay man, I wanted to, you know, take a turn away from those 20 years, and I wanted to spend more time in New York City, I wanted to spend more time with the community, and I just wanted to, you know, change things up, and, you know, the soundtrack of of New York at that time was club music, and dance music, and the vocoder, and all those things, and you know, I threw myself, you know, in earnest into all of that. Uh, I think it confounded a lot of my Longtime fans because there weren't a lot of guitars on the record, um, so you know I get I get that. Uh, you know I think it'll be curious now with the uh, with the distortion box set coming up on the twenty third of October, which is a twenty four CD you know reissue of all my work from from uh, workbook in nineteen eighty nine through Sunshine Rock last year. I'll be curious to see how those records are received the second time around, because in 2002, there wasn't as much crossover between guitar music and electronic music as there has been since. You know, that was right as Postal Service was starting. I think that was right as bands like, you know, No Twist or Styrofoam or Lollipuna, you know, that, you know, a lot of the, the European indie rock that had electronic elements, that was just being recognized in the U.S. So, um yeah, those were those were early tries at making that kind of music. um you know, I think the compositions are really good, sonically. yeah, I mean, they could always be you know, all of my records could be better sonically. It's just the nature of the nature of making work. Um, you know, after that, when I was living in d c from two thousand three to two thousand nine is when I started djing a lot with my friend Rich Morell, who was a uh, you know a big name in electronic music. And uh, we started a party called Blow Off, and you know, eleven years of DJing all over the world with that party was a, was a great experience. So it was it was not uh, it was not just a hobby; it was something I took seriously. So I'll, I'll be curious to see how people respond uh, to the to the reissues.
0: Yeah, spending spending time around DJs and nightclubs and, and people that really know their dance records—I mean, that's a whole other world, like you were talking about. And I've spent a little time. In places like that, and in, in clubs like that, and you know, when it—I don't know—when that world hits people at the right time in their life, it, it can definitely affect them greatly. I guess, as you would know from your time in nightclubs and as a DJ, I, as someone that that's DJed and been on stage, um, I'd I have to ask what what's more fun, what what's more of a high: seeing a crowd react to your guitar and your words, or playing a record that makes the dance floor explode?
1: Um, I love them both, and they're and they are very they they have similarities but the big the biggest differences to me is you know as a you know singer songwriter guitarist i'm i'm responsible for all the you know all the content of the message and you know when you're playing in a band you write a set list and you sort of have a general game plan when you take the stage and you know short of a short of a calamity uh, when you're in a band you typically stick to your set list and you stick to what you do as a band. So it's a little more predetermined. Uh as a DJ, uh it it was a crazy feeling when blow off started to get really big and we were, you know, DJing for, you know, thousands of people. It uh it was wild to look out and see this enormous floor covered with, you know, men having you know this community experience you know watching people watching people fall in love watching people fall out of love watching you know just watching the celebration of music and as a dj you have you know i found i had more flexibility if i was going into a going into a night with a with a mindset like i really want to educate people to this kind of progressive house tonight and after five minutes, it's, if it's not working, I've got to quickly change on the fly and do something that will get people re-engaged. So I, that's a long answer to to a simple question, but it's uh, yeah, I think with DJ you really have to read the audience a little bit more, whereas with a you know singer songwriter mode, you're standing and delivering a you know sort of a, sort of a set message. So those are the biggest differences to me. But DJing, what I what I found, I, I really learned a lot about sequencing and the flow from song to song across an evening, and that's uh, you know it, it was a little different, a different skill set that I that I was able to hone with with DJing. So I like them both.
0: So a question, um, kind of related to modulate that I brought up a few minutes ago. I'm I'm really fascinated when bands you know throw curveballs and make left turns. Um, The Neil Young record, Trans, like pops into my head right away. Maybe Satanic Majesties from the Stones or that Metallica Lou Reed record, stuff like that, where it gets a reaction. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Um, Maybe they become a little more, I don't know, well-received over time. But balancing expectations, keeping existing fans happy while satisfying your own creativity, I mean, that's something that a lot of artists, I'm sure, have thought about over the years. Do Do you... maybe earn more freedom from your fans the longer you're around is that something you've ever paid any attention to
1: um i i'm i'm very aware of what of what the expectations are um again i think having you know a first band like Husker Doom which made a pretty strong impression on people and you know then having a record like workbook and you know then the sugar albums i mean yeah there's a template there and people have you know this vision of what i should what I should do or what I do best, and you know that's yeah that that approach is definitely uh, a bread and butter approach, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's it's what I started with, and it's probably where you know what I'll end with. And along the way, uh, you know, I hope that I built up a little bit of trust and a little bit of goodwill with the audience to to experiment with things. But you know, when it comes to the creative side, uh, so many things influence the work you know what is my what is my health like where am i living who am i around what am i listening to what what what's catching my fancy what's the political climate there's all all of these environmental factors that go into beginning the creative process which starts with ideas and workshopping and writing and keeping notes and just you know as I like to call it you know I'm the guy with the with the with the bucket and whenever it rains I go outside and I catch the water and I'll figure out what to do with the water later you know that's the editing process I guess or the the structural process of writing so those are two you know there's the inspirational part and then there's the the work part and somewhere in there I mean, I'm aware of, of of my history. I'm aware of expectations. I'm, I'm aware of what people prefer, uh, and you know, it's. It, I guess it really, de- you know, it depends on where I'm at and if I decide to say, well, I'm going to do this. You know, you know, damn the results. Or, you know, I think at this point in my life, you know, having done this for forty plus years, you know, a good example would be when we go out on tour. We always enjoy playing the new album for people, but we're very conscious that there are songs, there are evergreens that that people really want to hear. You know, they really want to hear See a Little Light. They really want to hear Hoover Dam. They really want to hear Makes No Sense at All. And and I love those songs, and they're certainly easy enough to play, and we enjoy playing them because we enjoy seeing people enjoy the songs. So it's, um, you know, I, I think I'm mindful of all of it. And, you know, it's really, I guess it depends on what kind of mood I'm in when it goes when it comes time to make a record.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Husker Du. Um, the way the records have been received over time, especially Zen Arcade. Now, I remember hearing about that record when I was younger. It's kind of, at the time, it was regarded, and it still is, as a must-own classic all these years later. And when that record came out in 1984, I don't know how to say this, but how did that record fit into the world of rock music at the time? Did you have any idea it would be as flu- as influential as it was in the coming years?
1: Well, well, I mean, Husker Du was a was a, a three person band, myself and Grant Hart and Greg Norton. We got together and, and started playing in nineteen seventy nine in Saint Paul, Minnesota. Uh, you know, just started started like most bands do. You know, you know, vague emulations of things that you like, and you just keep trying on different clothes until you find the ones that fit, and then you end up with a sound. We did touring and, you know, in the fall of 1983 when we were on the road on the West Coast, you know, heading down the West Coast towards Los Angeles to, work, to do the sessions that became Zen Arcade, we started having ideas about, you know, the, the scope of making a record, you know, and, and looking at our contemporaries and looking at hardcore punk. And, you know, it was a, it was a wonderful art form that, that, that over time started to have limits and uh yeah i think we just wanted to do something that was a little out of the ordinary we you know a loosely constructed concept album you know it ended up being a double album and that was sort of against the rules at the time of hardcore punk uh we wanted to do something different and that's that was the that was the goal with that record you know how people received it and how it resonates over time you know really grateful for all of that but we you know, I think we knew we were going to do something different, but we did not know that it would be received the way it was and the way it still is. So
0: You mentioned a, uh, a double album, and I think I heard Henry Rollins talk about that once at the time, talking about hardcore punk, how it could be a little limiting. He said, you know, if you put a guitar solo into a song, you know, people are coming up to you. What is this, Freebird? So I, I have heard other artists talk about how that scene was a little bit limiting, I believe that's what you were talking about right there.
1: Yeah, I think you know it just it, again I think I think with any kind of music or any kind of scene once it gets formalized and once it has a language people start to codify, you know, they put they put codes and, and you know systems into place and it's it, it's totally natural. It's not it's not like oh my god hardcore just became so it just it sort of self-limits as as you know I mean when the Beatles got popular within 2 years there were 5000 bands that looked like the Beatles. It just it sort of happens.
0: <laughs> yeah. There was a book that uh, came out. It, one of the ways I actually learned about Husker Du was, was reading the reading the book, Our Band Could Be Your Life, written by uh, Michael Azarab. But he basically writes about a lot of the bands that came up through the 80s. The kind of post-hardcore, I guess you'd say, uh, Mission of Burma, Minor Threat, Big Black, bands like that, and Husker Du was in there. The Replacements as well. I'm sure you crossed paths with them over the years. But mm-hmm. the, the way that book was marketed was that it, it really took a look at everything that led to the explosion of Nirvana. Um, I guess the way Michael Azarad described it was, hey, you know, 70s punk, Ramones, and then Nirvana. Well, what happened in between? You were there that whole time. I, You know, I had friends tell me about that. Like, hey, when Nirvana came out, people were coming up to them. Hey, this is great. Yeah, I've been telling you to listen to Mudhoney for a couple of years now. I've been telling you to listen to Nirvana, and I've been telling you to listen to Husker Du and all these bands. I think I read that you were... Approach to produce Nevermind, is that true?
1: Yep. There was uh there was demo tapes floating around. Teen Spirit was not on the demo tapes, but most of the rest of what became Nevermind was was circulated. And at the time I was working with a management company that was close to Gary Gersh, who was the A and R person at Geffen for Nirvana, or at least the project manager. And yeah, I was on the short list of potential producers and that went to Butch Vig, and I am thrilled that it went to Butch Vig, because I, had I had anything to do with the record, I don't know if it would have been quite as you know groundbreaking or earth-shaking or life-changing as, as what Butch conjured for them. So, yeah, all's well that ends well on that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess. they Well, after that, I mean, they did go back. The next one is a little more punk, a little more... I don't know abrasive. I guess you'd say when they worked with Steve Albini, but um, it's it's kind of fun trying to picture what that record would have sounded like with uh, with Bob Mole behind the glass.
1: Um, just you know, you know, another another just like a, a quick uh, sort of a quick footnote to all of that. The first time that Butch Big and I sat together at a console to record a band would have been at Smart Studio in I think 1983 and 1984. A band from Madison, Wisconsin called Tar Babies. So. You know, Butch and I have worked together, and you know we're friends. And it, uh, and you know the other the other part that's funny when you mentioned Steve Albini is you know Blue Hearts was recorded at Electrical Audio in Chicago, which is Steve's studio. So yeah, it's a very small world. It is.
0: Did you were you playing any poker when you were there? I have to ask poker questions. No, when everybody, when well, any, anybody w- brings I up w- Steve Albini, I have to I have to ask about the poker.
1: Uh, I'm I'm no fool I, Steve's way too good at that game I would not I, I I would watch I think it was Thursday night was poker night but yeah I, I, I'd be happy to watch but no
0: yeah those poker games were they were pretty legendary in Chicago even before he won a World Series of poker event or something he did something pretty high profile a few years ago but uh, that,
1: that, you, you're exactly right <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh one last question I have for you um you've been real Generous with your time and articulates. I've had a lot of fun just listening to your responses here. Um, I I ask artists about this a lot, just because I I know how important it it can be to people. Um, I read somewhere that your your dad used to bring records home uh, to the house that he bought for a penny or something—old jukebox records. And I think all all music fans they they have songs, they have records, they have artists that that hit them hard, just hit them in the right place when they're young. Um, I like to say when the cement is wet Upstairs in your brain And it just leaves a mark In music that that can still sound powerful Decades later Um, Those records that your dad brought home Are are there a few that stand out to you? Anything specific when you were younger That that sent you on the path that you went down?
1: Yeah um, It was was mid and late 60s You know, things like the Beatles Beach Boys, the Birds The Hollies, Mamas and Papas Dave Clark Five uh all the motown singles at that time uh there was like weird uh gimmicky novelty trucker songs in there as well uh it was sort of crazy uh i still have all of the singles they're actually about five feet away from me right now so i still draw a lot of inspiration from those singles i you know, they they're, they are always there if I need to refer to something for a, for a little bit of help in a production moment or you know b- bits of inspiration. But you know, I mean, I was a Beatles kid for sure, uh, the Who as well. Uh, you know, but then in high school, started listening to heavy metal, listen to Fleetwood Mac, listen to what my friends were listening to until I heard the first Ram- Ramones album, and then that's what set me on the course to be the person that you're talking to now i guess is in terms of of how i look at music
0: yeah ramones that's that's a good answer that you can't go wrong with that yeah (laughs) all right bob thanks so much uh blue hearts is out now we can't wait to see your live show again whenever that's going to be 2021 hopefully fingers crossed maybe 2022 who knows but it's been a pleasure listening to your records all these years and, and seeing you live so thanks so much for the time and uh blue hearts if you haven't checked it out i would highly recommend doing that
1: Thank you so much, Jason. Everybody have a great day.
0: Okay, thanks, Bob.